This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Mark Mazzetti from the New York Times. A recent story co-written by you earned the title, the battle for the world's most powerful cyber weapon. What is that weapon and why is it so powerful? So the power of Pegasus is to invade the personal space of almost everyone on the planet. When you think about cyber weapons, you often think about, you know, giant hacking devices, you know, built to penetrate uh, the networks of other countries. Think, you know, the United States and Israel trying to sabotage the Iranian nuclear centrifuges, right? And that brings a great deal of power. But when you think about what Pegasus is, Pegasus is a tool that infiltrates devices that every single person carries, uh, that many people kind of have much of their life on. And what it is, is a, um, a spyware built by a company called NSO, which is an Israeli firm, it got its start more than a decade ago. And for a period of time, kind of had a monopoly on this technology. What it is, is sort of off-the-shelf hacking technology. Um, a country would buy Pegasus and then use it basically on whomever the government wanted to use it on, whether it's terrorists, whether it's criminals, uh, whether it's journalists, human rights activists, or political business. Right. So you were referencing Stuxnet earlier as the, the cyber weapon that targeted uh, Iran's uh, nuclear program. But this is targeting individual people. But I'm guessing it's not like a, a piece of software that you go to the store and buy in a box like Windows 95. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how Pegasus works and how it breaks into phones? Sure. So Pegasus seeks out vulnerabilities in phones, whether it be Apple phones or Android phones. And then using those vulnerabilities to infiltrate uh, the phone and um, basically take all of the information off the phone, turning the phone into a recording device, a spying device on its user. You know, in a way, Pegasus is not all about the software. It's all about the people behind it. NSO employs hundreds of people, many of them, most of them, with military and intelligence backgrounds in Israel who did this for a living in the military and then move to the private sector. And these people are just seeking day and night new vulnerabilities in these phones. Uh, the companies try to patch them up and the NSO hackers try to then find the new vulnerabilities that haven't been patched. So it's the redundancy that made NSO special, not just the software that it created. And I'm trying to visualize this. I think in your story, you described kind of rooms full of phones where they were trying to exploit vulnerabilities all the time. Yeah, there's a room for Android phones, there's a room for Apple phones, and that's what these people do. It's kind of a cat and mouse game. Apple tries to patch them, NSO and its ilk try to find the new vulnerabilities. And, and basically what they're doing is um, they're taking the information off at either end. So the big obviously concern is once it's encrypted, it can't be read. So if I send you a signal message, that message is encrypted. But if I get into the phone either on my end or on your end, 
after it's decrypted, I understand uh, what I sent to you. That was the sort of power of this technology. It, it got around the so-called encryption problem uh, that encrypted apps like Signal, like WhatsApp, became, became common uh, ways to communicate over the last decade. And this was a way around that. Well, it, it sounds like Pegasus can be used for a lot of different things, for, for good and for bad, maybe. And you described many countries have used Pegasus to help law enforcement since it was released uh, to the global market in 2011. And in some cases, we've seen countries abuse the software. Can you give us some examples from each end of that good to evil spectrum? Yeah. And, you know, there's plenty of cases where it's it's both in the same country. Um, you know, they build it as a tool that could be used to basically chase criminals, hunt drug traffickers, pedophiles, and, and terrorists, right? And so that was a sort of a very seductive power that a country wanted to obtain. So for instance, in Mexico, Mexico was the first client of NSO in the middle of a bloody ongoing war with narco traffickers. Mexico bought Pegasus and famously used it to help capture El Chapo, the, the infamous drug lord. Um, and that was a case of, of a success story of Pegasus. But at the same time, the government again, seduced by this power of Pegasus, um, then turned it against journalists, against activists, against lawyers, uh, even against international investigators looking into this particularly horrific case of dozens of students who had been disappeared in Mexico. Uh, and so it became this real tool for government abuse. And that wasn't just in Mexico. It was used other places in Latin America. And then it um, began being used in Eastern Europe uh, in the Gulf, most famously by Saudi Arabia to chase down dissidents. Um, it was a tool used across, has been used across the world. Again, there's good cases of it being used for real good. But, you know, on the other side of the ledger, the cases of really horrific uses of Pegasus really pile up. And did those cases sort of make governments think twice about buying access to the software? Uh, not really. The, the profits for NSO continued to pile up more and more countries were interested in this technology. Again, offensive cyber tools at one point were kind of the preserve of a very, very small number of very wealthy, powerful countries, the United States, China, Israel, et cetera. What this was, was this off-the-shelf tool that sort of democratized government spying. Any country could do what the big countries could do if they bought Pegasus. So everyone was interested in it. So this was not just autocracies. This was you know, democracies in Western Europe, Germany, um, Belgium, um, a great number of countries were interested in this tool. And that presented this great opportunity for Israel. NSO couldn't sell to a country unless the government of Israel approved it. And so one of the big themes of our story was how Israel really used it as a tool of statecraft, as a way to gain diplomatic advantage. Oh, you want Pegasus? Well, perhaps you, you know, can sort of turn your foreign policy more in the direction of Israel. Right. In your piece, you compared cyber weapons to uh, things like fighter jets, uh, ways to bolster national defense, but also wield international influence. Can you tell us a little bit more about how Israel became a key player in the cyber weapons business? Sure. Yeah. I mean, weapons diplomacy is nothing new, not only, and it's not just an Israeli phenomenon. The United States you know, often uses its government officials around the world kind of as salespeople for 
Lockheed Martin, Raytheon for big defense projects. It's it's used weapons and tanks and uh, and the like. Um, Israel kind of had this, in effect, monopoly on this product in part because it was a real pioneer in offensive cyber weapons. As I said, you have very, very smart people coming out of the military and intelligence world who gained experience with offensive cyber um, in the Israeli military and in the intelligence services, then leaving the services and being lured by companies like NSO and also on the defensive side of the ledger for a lot of money. And so NSO created this product um, that Israel could really harness for its advantage. And there was really a, a number of years where NSO was kind of the only game in town for countries that wanted this product. And that, again, gave Israel a great advantage. And where does the United States fit into all this? Or maybe a simpler question is, how did Pegasus make its way here? The United States has been talking for a long time about this so-called going dark problem. It, it sort of has its origins you know, decades ago, but, but really, if you think about the Snowden revelations in 2013, when Edward Snowden, the former NSA contractor, revealed that um, all of these tech companies had basically given back doors uh, to the NSA, the American government, to examine how everyone communicates, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. And that had this really sort of tremendous effect on the tech companies themselves. It was embarrassing for them. And they um, made it their mission, post Snowden, to basically say, okay, that era is over. The government's no longer getting into our technology. We're encrypting everything end to end. And you, Apple user, can feel safe that your privacy is protected by Apple because the government's no longer getting in. The U.S. government then said, well, this is now a problem, okay? Uh, because yes, the average person should be, have a right to privacy. However, criminals now have privacy. Terrorists now have privacy, and they called it going dark. Terrorists and criminals now use Signal and WhatsApp, and the FBI can't hear or see what they're doing. And so the U.S. really had an interest in finding ways around this going dark problem. And the FBI became quite interested in what NSO had to offer. And in beginning in 2019, the FBI bought a version of Pegasus uh, to test out, uh, to see how it worked, with the possible end use of deploying it in American law enforcement operations. So at the same time, all of these revelations were coming out about Mexico, Saudi Arabia, all of the horrific, horrific abuses of Pegasus. The United States actually secretly acquired Pegasus and tested it out for possible deployment. And I should say that um, according to our reporting, it was not actually deployed by the FBI um, operationally. However, the CIA helped buy Pegasus for a third country, Djibouti, the country in the Horn of Africa. Um, so in effect, the U.S. kind of did deploy it as a sort of middle person, middleman, uh, allowing another government with a bad human rights record to deploy it on its own citizens. So the way you're describing the timeline, there was a dilemma created after the Snowden revelations. That's the going dark thing that you described. And FBI testing out access to Pegasus was a way of dealing with that dilemma, but in turn kind of creating another dilemma. How did the government grapple with that? So the Biden administration comes in, and this is after you know years, about five years of 
reports about NSO abuses, you know, you know, in all these different countries. And, you know, the Biden administration basically comes in and says, this is proliferated too long. It's the Wild West. And this is an industry that needs to start being regulated. So late last year, the Biden administration blacklisted NSO, put it on a list of companies where other American companies cannot sell to. So they can't buy from Amazon cloud storage. They can't buy Dell computers. They can't buy Intel chips. And there was a way to sort of starve and suffocate NSO. The problem is, of course, as we reported, they were already dabbling with NSO. Uh, and so it was kind of embarrassing that this was revealed uh, at a time that they're trying to blacklist the company. At the same time, um, you know, it's no longer just NSO. Um, you know, sorry for the cliche, but the kind of genie's out of the bottle here, where other countries, other companies have been developing similar products, and NSO is no longer the you know the monopoly here. Um, the technology's proliferated, so trying to um, you know suffocate NSO is takes care of that problem, but other problems are going to pop up. So the government is now kind of grappling with, okay, well, NSO might be bad. However, what if we, the United States government, want to use similar products? Are there American firms developing similar products uh, that the government could use uh, and, you know, with effects that, you know, still are unknown? And are there American companies trying to do this that you know about? There are. Um, and, you know, how many, uh, it's, it's unclear. Uh, we write about one in our story, a company called Boldened, which is a offensive cyber firm that does work for American intelligence agencies. And we report about a presentation that was made to Raytheon, that Bolden made to Raytheon early last year. And in particular, one of the slides was interesting about technologies, tools they were developing to try to hack WhatsApp and that they had successfully hacked WhatsApp until a WhatsApp update um, kind of burned, burned their access and they were kind of kicked out. Now, what was particularly interesting about this was according to this presentation, uh, one of the key funders of Boldened is a fund run by Peter Thiel, famously one of the early investors of Facebook. And if you step back and think about it, Peter Thiel was investing in a firm, Boldened, at the same time, He's on the board of Facebook, which owns WhatsApp. So it's, uh, it's, it's kind of strange bedfellows. And I should point out that recently Peter Thiel just resigned from the WhatsApp board, but it is still very much kind of the Wild West out there. Well, I have to ask, where do we go from here? What's next? Not just for the United States and the development of cyber weapons, but also just the average American and smartphone user that wants to believe that their encrypted information stays private. You know, it 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 is. Um, I guess on a depressing note, it, it does it does seem as if whatever efforts governments might take to kind of rein in the capabilities of a company like NSO, twenty other NSOs are out there ready to ply their wares. No matter how hard the big tech firms try to protect privacy, uh, try to insist that our communications are secure. I think it's inevitable that this sort of cat and mouse game will continue, that new vulnerabilities will be found, new ways to get around the protections will be found. And, you know, even if governments say they're using these tools for good, and in many cases, 
they will be using it for good. Um, the power is seductive enough, of a, as I said, that it will be used in ways that does have real problems for our privacy. As long as you know, you and I and our society is still living lives digitally, carrying around phones, doing things in insecure ways, and I'm guilty of you know not always having the greatest digital security in my habits. Um, this is all inevitable. In other words, the best thing you can do is just throw your phone into the ocean. <laughs> yes, stop, and stop listening to this podcast. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Today's episode was produced by Taylor Macon and engineered by Christian Ayala. I'm Adam Clark Estes. Thanks for listening.